Hi, this is John Amble. I'm here at the American Bar at the Savoy Hotel in Central London again for another edition of the War on the Rocks podcast series. I'm here today with Raf Pantucci and Robin Simcox. We're going to talk about uh, terrorism, jihadism, and, and, and uh, all things related threats. Uh, Raf is a senior research fellow at the Royal United Services Institute, and Robin is a research fellow at the Henry Jackson Society, and both have spent uh, a great deal of time looking at some of these problems, some of these issues, and uh, discussing the strategic responses to them as well. So we're going to touch on both. Um, it'll be a, a bit of an interesting discussion today because the, the problem is, is truly global. The challenge of terrorism is truly global, so we'll kind of, I think, bounce around geographically. But why don't we start with uh, Yemen. A couple of weeks ago, the U.S. closed 21 embassies temporarily uh, across the Middle East and North Africa in response to what they said was but I guess I think one U.S. senator said was the uh, most serious threat that we had seen in the U.S. Uh, from U.S. intelligence services since 9-11. Uh, the U.K. followed suit, closed at least their Yemen embassy, I don't know which other ones, and also issued a warning about shipping uh, off the coast of Yemen. Uh, after that, Yemeni authorities said they, they thwarted a plot uh, targeting energy, energy infrastructure and ports in the country. Uh, and it kind of has dominated, I think it's become the... The most serious threat, certainly, that we've seen, I think, as observers in quite a while, and some interesting dynamics coming out of that. Uh, Robin, let me start with you, and, and uh, let me know if you, what are your thoughts on, on the plot? Well, it, it seems as if uh, relatively clear something serious was happening. We saw a, uh, we saw the drum beats this almost in the week before, weeks before the embassies were closed, because there'd been a lull in American drone strikes against Yemen. Um, against targets in Yemen that was picked up in the in the days before um, the announcement that this this plot was underway or was taking place or that there was a credible threat against uh, against these targets. My my own feeling, my overwhelming feeling at the end of this, outside of the fact that AQAP is obviously a threat, and I don't think many people would would have disagreed with that anyway, was that. I felt as if far too much information had, had come out about this. I think this is great news that we're able to intercept communications between Zawahiri and Waheshi, the head of Al-Qaeda and the head of Al-Qaeda in the, in the Arabian Peninsula. I'm less sure whether we should know about it, whether, uh, whether such a deluge of information that seemed to come out, a lot of it seemingly quite unfocused. I mean, was it an attack against am uh, embassies? Was it against an ambassador? Was it pipelines? Was it ports? Was it all of the above? I felt in the end it was it was almost was almost unhelpful um, the amount that such such amount of information was released on it. Why do you think that was? Why 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 what sets this instance apart from say other plots where really you know the ones that sometimes get pointed to in the, in the for instance in the wake of the of the Snowden uh, leaks yeah. uh, when when officials were coming out and saying no these have helped us thwart all these plots well they're plots that we haven't heard anything about why. Why this one, beyond just the fact that they had to close the embassies? Why, why did all the details come out here? I think the fact that, the, the, the fact that there was such a public um, response, it was the, the fact that all, so many embassies had shot, meant that almost there was, an, there was a kind of institutional internal pressure for something or other to come out, otherwise it would look almost uh, obscene to the point of absurd to not say anything at all about it. But I think also the... I mean, I, I have to think the Obama administration on terrorism especially does have a propensity to leak um, not every plot not every time I'm sure but it's not it's, it's, there's plenty of examples where you can say too much has come out I think 
from the Obama administration in the wake of some of these attacks, thwarted attacks. And I and I think long term, we've got to we've got to fight this a little smarter than that. That's an interesting point, um, and 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 maybe points to some of the differences, or maybe can lead into a discussion of some of the differences in terms of strategy, strategic responses to terrorism between the U.S. and, say, its European allies, the U.K. here, for instance. Raph, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Well, I mean, the one thing I would also add about why such a big eruption was seen around this specific plot, I mean, it's August, you know, it's quiet news time. So, you know, when something like this happens, of course, I think there's some sort of external factors there as well. I think, you know, I think this particular plot, you know, AQAP has always been a threat. You know, it's always been a noticeable, one of the more dangerous affiliates. It's been active. It's got a proven capacity to launch attacks abroad. Um, and, you know, we're about to do another incident by them. You know, if you look back historically, it was about one a year, you know, and then they had this underpants two attempt, uh, which was a little while ago, it was about 18 months. But, you know, we've had a lull since that, and it would make sense that you'd have another big sort of plot popping up and brewing. Um, so I think that's probably, you know, I think it makes sense and it fits whole picture. And I think the timing, so it meant that it became a bigger sort of news story maybe than others. And then, as you say, in the wake of the NSA Snowden scandal, you know, I think there's a, a, a clearly an institutional need in the States to prove that all this work is going in a good direction. It's worthwhile. So, you know, I think there's lots sort of institutional factors why that's the case. I think in terms of countering, you know, the UK-US um, countering terrorism and how the different approaches are, I mean, I think the Brits only closed the embassy in Yemen. And my understanding was that there was a certain amount of skepticism uh, here in the UK uh, about, you know, what actually was going on here, what was really being planned. Was it as big a threat as the Americans are making it out to be? It was, it was, I think there was a little hesitation there. I think more broadly, though, I mean, this sort of the classic uh, difference between British and American counterterrorism approaches is the, you know, the Brits like to watch things. You know, it's it's a, they sit here, they watch these plots for a long time. I mean, we can go back to the big airline spot of 2006, you know. That's a sort of classic example of a situation where the two approaches to counterterrorism, the Brits are like, we should watch them more, we should watch them more, and the Americans are like, arrest, 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 you know. But it's a different system. But then you see the difficulty is, of course, that the British legal system um, is a difficult one when you try and build these sorts of terrorist cases. In the States, they seem to come together in a sort of clear way, and juries get it and sort of convict. Here, it's a much sort of murkier process, and so the police like to watch and like to observe and gather information and see where it goes in, in those terms rather than sort of shut it down early. Uh, let me ask you, uh, Raph, Rusi, your employer, is hosting a uh, counterterrorism uh, conference in yeah. October. And you're going to talk about some best practices uh, since presumably looking backward um, to see what kind of works and what doesn't. Um, in that context, do you see, in, in speaking of the sort of different strategic approaches that you see between the U.S. and the U.K. over the past, say, 10, 12 years, have you seen those approaches diverge more or, or, or have they kind of come together um, you know, by necessity as, as the two countries have, have really worked together? Um, I think that uh, the U.S. and U.K. work very closely on these things, and they kind of agree and do a lot of information sharing and do a lot of joint cooperation, and I think probably their approaches are quite similar. I think the differences often are different parts of the world that we're focused on. So Yemen, for example, is, m I would say, quite a substantial American lead. 
the U.S. has clearly got a lot invested in sort of dealing with the issues in Yemen, and they've spent a lot of money there. Whereas the U.K. would look at a country like Nigeria, for example, and they would focus their efforts there, where historically there's a stronger link. So I'd say where they would diverge is probably more in terms of certain regions where the U.K. has better connections, has stronger connections, let's say, um, and sort of a longer history. Maybe. Interesting. Uh, I'm going to apologize if anybody heard in the background noise. Uh, the uh, server here at the American Bar didn't like, I guess, that my bag was encroaching on the table next yeah. to us. <laughs> um, let's move on to, uh, you know, we can come back to Yemen if, if either of you have any thoughts about it, but let's move on to Syria. Um, Syria obviously has all sorts of issues that we could we could talk about, and we could do a pod- number of podcasts on, on just yeah. that. Yesterday there was this explosion in, in, uh, in, in Beirut in a Hezbollah stronghold, which indicators right now, and I'm sure this will be made clear going forward, was, was an attack by a Sunni group of some sort. Um, 24 people killed uh, was the latest casualty toll that I saw, which I think indicates perhaps an even greater spillover or a spillover to a greater degree than we've seen so far from, from what's been happening in, in Syria. Um, is there any indication that that's going to, do you think, continue both in Lebanon, say in Iraq, uh, maybe in Turkey or elsewhere? The one thing I think we, we can't underestimate about Syria, I think from what we've, we've seen over the last couple of years, is, is the huge impact it's having regionally on a whole variety of levels. Um, and this, this incident in Lebanon looks like being the latest. And my, my, my feeling when, I was, when reading about this Lebanon story was actually... I know there was a, a similar attack happened uh, last month, an uh, incursion into, into Hezbollah strongholds. But Hezbollah seemed to have a, a strong grip on their neighborhoods. And to me, it was surprising that, again, the breaches have been, have been uh, slipped through and this car bomb, Sunnis in a, in a, in a driving through a Hezbollah stronghold, finding areas to park car bombs. I, I mean, I, I don't mean to be, I don't mean or intend to sound conspiratorial about it, but it's 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 strange to me that um, that Hezbollah has allowed its breaches to be to be uh, defeated again. And the question is now, I suppose, what's their response? It's not like they've got a lack of arms with which to respond, but. Who do you respond against? And and there's a, there's a lot of uh, confusion, I think, as to in terms of the the group taking credit. Who are they? They're a, they're a new group uh, that we haven't really heard of before. How do you respond to something like that? I think there's a there's just a bunch of implications from this attack that we've yet to see be played out. Raf, maybe you can uh, you can touch on that as well. Some of the some of the you know, events in looking at some of the events, the recent events in Syria, and and you know, talk a bit about. What you see is the is the regional impacts of that. You know, the the Western approach has been essentially keep it at arm's length. There's been, you know, with the the, the red line that was supposed to have been crossed when Assad used chemical weapons, and nothing really happened in the wake of that, save for promises to, to arm the rebels with I guess small arms and ammunition. Um, but it seems that the sort of collective, <coughs> excuse me, an ad hoc approach really from Western governments has been just to try to put up a wall to the extent possible around Syria and keep it from really spilling over. I don't know that that's working, but maybe you can touch on that. I don't think it's working at all. I mean, clearly this incident in Lebanon is one of a number of attacks we've seen there. We've seen attacks in Turkey. We've seen networks in Jordan and people being disrupted there. Uh, in Iraq, you know. I mean, Iraq was already a huge problem, but what, last month was the highest casualties we've had in 
five years or something. I mean, it's almost back to the rates of the insurgency of 2006. So, you know, it's clearly already spilling across its borders. And I think the Western response is, has frankly just been, I mean, my own sense of this is that I think we've probably crossed that moment where we can actually do anything really to change the situation on the ground. I think there maybe was a moment a year ago or so where if we had decided to really for help elements within the insurgency, they might have been able to topple the regime and then who knows where it would be. Um, I realize that's a big what if and, you know, who knows. But, but I do think now these groups have gotten so strong, they've started to spread around, they've got their funding networks, they've got their support networks, they're trying to take pieces of territory. They're doing trades with each other. We hear stories that, you know, there, uh, there, there are sort of deals happening between rebel groups and the government on the ground to sort of get fuel from one place to another, and they're sort of tactic. Do you know what I mean? So this is, it's becoming a sort of de facto situation where you're having all these sort of separate little entities. You've got the sort of Alawites controlling the coast, and then, you know, other sort of pockets that come and go depending on sort of the strength of whatever group. You know, I think the Western response at this point, I think we're just kind of waiting it out, aren't we? I mean, this is kind of it. I mean, the government, the, the American government said we're going to start arming the rebels, right? Uh, but then they decide it's not clear that they know who to, who they want to give it to, who do they trust, who's really reliable. I mean, we hear stories that they're already doing a certain amount of training uh, across the borders. You know, so I think there's a lot that's happening at the moment, but I just don't, I don't see that we have any great denouement coming. You know, I think it's going to sort of just drag on in this way. And the worrying situation is that it becomes, that you start having, you know, strongholds developing that are controlled by a group like Jabhat al-Nusra or ISIL. Um, you know, IQ, Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And once that starts to happen, then you've really got to start to worry. You know, you start having ungoverned pieces of territory, but they are governed, of course. <laughs> They're governed by people who have a track record of trying to attack the West. I think just to come in briefly on that, the big story we're missing, I think, generally policymakers are missing on in, is Iraq. And that's because, for, for I, I guess, understandable reasons, I think people are sick of Iraq, and they're sick of the Iraq problem and the fact that we went in 2003 for, for an unpopular war and, and have obviously since withdrawn. The last thing that any president wants us to do is start considering his Iraq options. But we are getting car bombings, suicide bombings, people are dying by the hundreds. Al-Qaeda in Iraq, extremely strong, can carry out operations with impunity, expanding their influence into Syria. I always maintain with Al-Qaeda in Iraq, if this was any other Al-Qaeda franchise, we would be a lot more worried and we would be proclaiming that we were a lot more worried. But because it's Iraq, where we have, let's face it, no good options and shamefully, I think, no leverage almost on a, on a government that, considering the, the blood and treasure spilled in Iraq, um, nobody wants to, to, to raise the issue, I think, and, it's, and it could come back to haunt us. I mean, I would chime in with one quick thing on that. I would say, the, I mean, you're right. We'd be, we ignore Iraq and policymakers have for quite a long time now, and the violence there is awful. But, you know, at the end of the day, al-Qaeda in Iraq hasn't tried to launch attacks against the West. You know, it hasn't been seen to be linked to attacks against the West. Now, that's not to say it's not a group we shouldn't focus on, and that hundreds of Iraqis dying isn't a terrible thing. It absolutely is. But, I mean, I can see, I think the calculation is, I think partially, we don't want to go back into Iraq. But I think it's also because looking at the group, it doesn't seem to be a group that has, you sure, know, you expressed about, interest. You, you could say the same thing about al-Shabaab. And we're, we're terribly worried about al-Shabaab. And, you know, for, and, and I think, I mean, I, I take the point. I don't dispute it. I just feel as if it hasn't explicitly attempted to attack us yet. But there's been things in and around the periphery. They put out a, um, they raised money for... Uh, the assassination of Lars Vilt, the Swedish cartoonist that yeah. Colleen LaRose tried to carry out. Um, there was a story recently about um, 
al-Qaeda in Iraq, uh, experimenting with chemical weapons and suggestion that they may be smuggled to America and Europe. So um, I guess it's just, it's just one of those areas that I think that is, we, we, we ignore at our peril in the long term. Yeah, uh, Raf, you mentioned ISIL, the Islamic State of Iraq and yeah. Levant, um, which was formerly ISI, Islamic State of Iraq, which was what they called themselves. We tend to call them AQI. Um, I guess it kind of depends on whether or not they want to highlight or we want to highlight their, their sort of global uh, face or, or their kind of indigenous face, which they try to, which is a facade in a lot of ways, I think, when, when much of their leadership comes from outside of the country. I was in Iraq in 2008. The violence levels now, they're saying, are the highest since 2008. In 2008, the violence was indeed very high, but it was different, too. It was multifaceted. You had AQI. You had AQI very active in parts, particularly out in Ambar province and Diyala province. And um, I was in East Baghdad. We didn't have much of an AQI presence, but we had similar levels of violence because we had Jesh al-Mahdi, the, the uh, Muqtad al-Assad, Shiite militia. Um, you don't have the Shiite militias uh, really acting to nearly the same extent right now. So you've got similar levels of violence, but you've taken out one of the major protagonists, which almost makes AQI's violence, I think, that much more... Um, I don't want to use this word because of the positive connotations that have, but impressive. I mean, prolific, we'll say. Yeah. Um, but going back to their, their sort of rebranding as ISIL, what, 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 what does that mean? You know, when... There was talk for a while that all of these foreign fighters that were in Iraq and sort of weren't didn't have much to do there anymore, sort of streaming into Syria, and that maybe that would have a, uh, a, a pacifying effect within Iraq because there were fewer and fewer fighters. But we haven't seen that. So is ISI? Yeah, and and why do you think that is? Well, I think yeah. I mean the the, the change of name ISIL. I think it was part of the fact that you know Syria has become the big subject. You know, it is the main. Uh, you know, jihad is the most exciting battlefield out there, and everyone wants to go. And you got all these people flowing in there, and it's a sort of a just fight. You know, it fits a globalist narrative. You have it. You got an evil dictator who's oppressing his people. You've got dead women and children on YouTube every day. You know, it's an easy picture to paint. And it's sort of very attractive, and it sort of fits in this global narrative. And the West is standing by and doing nothing while this all takes place. So I think that what you saw with Syria was just became this has become this enormous magnet. If you see videos and pictures of the foreign fighters who are going. I mean, this is from everywhere. <laughs> you know, I mean, from all over the world. There's Somalis showing up there. There's all sorts of South Asians showing up. There's Europeans. It's just like this giant magnet. And so I think part of that was, you know, when ISI decided to rebrand itself into ISIL, I think part of that was because they wanted to kind of absorb some of this glory. You know what I mean? I mean, because this is obviously the just fight, the big fight that's out there, the fight in Syria. And so in so much as they're able to sort of harness this energy and brand and turn it into their own, it's to their advantage. So I said, that, was my under, that was my assessment of why they would sort of latch onto them. I think what's interesting about Syria, in fact, is that it has become such a magnet that you've seen some of the regional affiliates or other sort of Islamist groups out there have been telling their people, don't go to Syria. We've actually got a fight happening here that we need help with. You know, specifically Doku Umar over in Chechnya has done at least two videos along these lines. AQIM, I think, put out a news press release at some point saying, hey, look, you know, Syria's all very good, but we've got stuff going on here too, you know, Um, which is interesting because, I mean, but I mean, it does reflect, I think, just what a huge magnet is. I think your point about uh, Jaish al-Mahdi in in Syria is, I think, in in Iraq, I'm sorry, is I think that's another element which maybe hasn't expressed itself yet, and I wonder whether and at what point it will, because we've also seen Shia Shia going to fight in uh, Iraq as well. So you've got people going on both sides. 
now they're going to go home at some point, and that might start having some escalating thing. If at home they see that this sort of, you know, the AQI is targeting Iraqi Shia on a sort of regular basis, maybe they'll come back with some training and ideas and try to do something of themselves, and then that would be more of this sort of spreading violence of, um, out of Syria. Yeah, uh, that's that's interesting. You know, I, th- I think that Jesha Mahdi and, and uh, other, they weren't the only, of course, they weren't the only Shia militia that was active at the time, but they were in, in, in many ways viewed, I think, quite accurately as a response to AQI violence. And you, Has you, Al Sadr said anything yes. about Syria? No, not that I know of. Not that I know of. Um, Muqtad al Sadr has also sort of transformed himself a bit. Yeah. And, and I think, I personally think that he he's kind of enjoys his, his role as a political kingmaker, so to speak, and doesn't necessarily want to jeopardize that. Okay. That doesn't mean that all of the people that were willing to take up arms in 2007 and 2008 on his order wouldn't do so on the order of some other charismatic yeah. figure, say. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see if, if, if some of the say reprisals against Sunnis that have ar- we've already been seeing really sort of crystallize into a movement into a more organized militia sort of organization uh, I want to switch gears here uh, Robin just before we started recording you mentioned the, this infamous conference call that recently took place uh, and has been the subject of, of a lot of scrutiny and, and discussion and examination some of it quite insightful I think some of it maybe less so uh, over the past couple of weeks since it happened, maybe can you touch on that? Explain a little bit about what, what happened. Well, this this is the a reference, the story um, that the I mean, we, we learned uh, reasonably early on in this whole Yemen uh, embassy story that um, it was intercepted communications between two senior Al Qaeda leaders. Then we learned it was between Zawahiri and Wasir on Nahishi. And then apparently the the next story has been that it was a. Um, and, and the Daily Beast, uh, two excellent national security reporters, um, were briefed by the U.S. that this was a conference call between uh, Zawahiri and 20 other um, al-Qaeda leaders um, from around the world, including the Sinai Peninsula, Nigeria, Uzbekistan, the Islamic Maghreb, all the, the whole gamut was there. Um, and I, it just struck me as the most remarkable story because it, it seemed to me it would it kind of... It would force us to rethink, if this was the case, a lot of the things we think about about Al-Qaeda's security precautions. I mean, I know bin Laden was the most wanted man in the world, but think about the the security efforts he went to to get a message out from Abbasabad to uh, to one of his commanders in the courier system. To me, the idea that Sawahiri would have a, have a, have a, um, a conference call with all of his top leaders um, and the security risks that posed is... is almost so fantastic that I can't believe it can be true um, but I mean perhaps that's overly sceptical well I mean I think that the, the I don't think it was a conference school I don't think it was you know they all sitting around different phones in different parts of the world I mean I've got a number of reasons I sort of wonder about this I think the story seems to have emerged now that it may in fact be some sort of intranet and that there was one of the major forums that apparently had a sort of password protected area and maybe in fact this discussion happened there so it wasn't so much a conference call as it was a sort of a group and if you will on in a sort of web forum but they obviously decided to call it a uh, conference call because that sort of sounds sexier you know <laughs> sounds a little more fun you know guys on the internet isn't that exciting right? we all want to picture what Wadud and Waheshi and, and Zawahiri sitting in conference tables where exactly. it's polished yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly it's got a certain poetry to it you know <laughs> but um but the, the other thing I wonder about this story was the, na- the list of groups that came out. I mean, you know, the initial story it said 
they had like Boko Haram and the IMU, Islamic Movement of Uzbekistan, listed on the call or on the call or on the internet conversation, whatever. Um, and then the story said, if you want to look at who was on the call, look at the embassies that we closed. Um, but that doesn't really stack up because Abuja wasn't closed and neither was Tashkent, you know. So, so I wonder a little bit about if what's really going on here. I mean, with all these stories, it's very difficult to know the absolute truth. I think, uh, you know, a leak of this magnitude would presumably trigger some sort of substantial Department of Justice investigation if it was a leak. If it was a conscious leak and something done on purpose, then it was placed in the media, and that's a whole different equation. I don't think we've had any talk about there being a big investigation into this, which makes me wonder a little bit about it. You know, there could be 101 reasons why this has been leaked. Um, it was a quiet news period. They just wanted to get something out there, and some overeager, you know, agent decided to leak this. Or, or you know, or maybe this is a feint. You know, it's a distraction from maybe there was someone actually in on the call who was feeding information out. You know, so it's. I, I think it's a very murky uh, question. I think the whole dilemma of you know, I think the the question about operational security and you know, is this a breach? I mean, I think we also have to bear in mind they have to find a way of communicating, don't they? You know, I mean, they have to do some sort of way. Picking up a phone is not an option. So it makes sense, this sort of a forum. Um, I'm not sure that they were actually on it either. I think it may have been their couriers who were on it. So I think it's sort of a... So I suspect the whole courier system probably still exists. It's just, you know, it's more um, detached. I, I, for one, have never been on a conference call that worked fluently with for everybody. There's always somebody who can't get dialed in. And so I like the idea of the IMU leader in... in the borderlands of Pakistan slamming his fist down yeah, and yelling yeah, angrily at his tech guy for not knowing the right number to dial in. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? <laughs> Casting attack fear on him for getting it wrong. <laughs> you mentioned, Raf, that uh, Boko Haram is one of the groups that was supposedly on this call, and, and yeah. uh, that brings us to another thing that I, I thought would be interesting to touch on. On Monday, I believe, Boko Haram provided a video. Interestingly, they do things a little bit different. Their their uh, their media uh, operations are a bit different. They provided a video directly to reporters in Madaguri and yeah. in uh, in northern Nigeria of Shikau, their leader, uh, and he said something interesting. He essentially said, "Nigeria is nothing to us. We're better armed than 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 the Joint Task Force, the the Nigerian military force that's engaging them. Uh, we have more people. We're, we can defeat them anytime we want." Uh, we're done with Nigeria, we're targeting the U.S. Um, of course, you always have to try to distinguish between the sort of rhetoric that these groups employ and their actual strategic objectives. Uh, do you think that there is, a, a uh, say, a strategic reorientation on the part of, of Boko Haram from what we've seen over the past couple of years? I don't think there's a strategic reorientation. I think um, the group has always adopted this sort of globalist rhetoric. Um, they did have that small offshoot, Ansaru, which... Uh, seemed to take the globalist rhetoric and run with it in a really, in a particular way, and started targeting lots of foreigners. Um, but now you've got Shikau saying this as well. You know, it, it, it kind of makes sense for the group. I mean, the group has historically had links with AQIM and Al Shabab and even AQAP, supposedly. Um, you know, so we've got these links there already. And if they're talking to these other groups, and they are thinking in sort of globalist terms as well, does this translate into action? That's the real question. And so far, I don't think we've seen any evidence that Boko Haram is anything more than a regional sort of threat. Um, I know here in the UK there's been sort of a push to try to understand the UK's got a substantial Nigerian population. There's a fear maybe there could be some backlash here. However, the Nigerian population here is 90% Christian. When we've seen Nigerians show up in terrorist spots, they tend to be converts, like the Michael Adbalaja down in Woolwich. Um, 
that's that's tended to be where it's come from and you know and they did go looking for these connections and they couldn't really find it there's some trace evidence of fundraising maybe but even that seems quite uh, quite detached I think you know Boko Haram is a fascinating group because it seems very much as sort of a regional you know there's historic trouble in northern Nigeria north and the south of Nigeria have always hated each other in one way or another and they've just sort of managed to feed off that and I think that the government response there has been so brutal in some cases that I think it's probably spurring on uh, Boko Haram's success so for them to start talking in these sorts of terms I mean it attracts attention which is ultimately what these groups are constantly trying to do they're trying to get their message out there and if you say we're big for too big for Nigeria we're going to start going after the states that's going to attract attention you know? um, so you know, I don't know. Again, I think it's a question of is this going to translate into action. So far, we haven't seen it. You mentioned the, uh, uh, the, the attacks in Woolwich, which uh, you know, we were just talking before this about how certain events, certain plots, uh, uh, certain developments tend to get varying degrees of, of coverage in the U.S. versus the U.K. So for listeners who are in the U.S. and are familiar, it was essentially a couple of months ago uh, in, here in London, in East London, when a soldier, uh, off-duty soldier, uh, not in uniform, walked out onto the street and was essentially run down in a car and uh, quite brutally attacked and killed uh, by two individuals. Uh, and, 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 and that kind of, I guess, leads into the, the next piece of this discussion. We've talked a lot about these groups and their activities abroad in their sort of, their indigenous activities, so to speak. Um, what is the nature of the threat that, that say, is faced here or in the U.S. and the West generally? The, the I hate to say, you know, homegrown threat, but uh, is the is the threat? Well, here in London, say, here in the U.K., is it is it has it changed since uh, 2005? Since the since the uh, London bombings in July of 2005? I think mo- most people would say, and and Raf has done some terrific work on this as well in terms of uh, tracking the homegrown problem I think most people would say it's changed since July 2005 was a bit of a was a bit of a watershed um, we've had obviously we've had uh, attempted attacks since then 2006 saw the most significant arguably of all time in British uh, al-Qaeda inspired threat of the transatlantic uh, liquid bomb plot um, since then it's 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 generally been uh, the the plotting has, has occurred. There's been definite intent to attack. We had a case that uh, came in the courts this year of three individuals who uh, went to Pakistan, came back, tried to. Well, the plan was to set off bombs in their in their backpacks. Um, and we've had other we've had other plots since. But the the, the general perception is the threat, if not receding, has has changed to the extent that. Most groups would be the British security services are up on this to the extent that I think most uh, most cells, most credible cells, and and Raf, come in and on this if you disagree would would tend to be would tend not to uh, it's it's unlikely to get a 15, 16 man cell I think anymore thinking they can successfully carry out attacks against the UK if, if, that, if such a thing ever existed and, and I think in the transatlantic plot would be the largest it's extremely difficult now um, but at the same time the areas where you can get training and the, the potential areas the regionalization of the threat in terms of uh, the foreign the, 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 there's, there's, there's ample opportunities for Brits to go abroad fight, train, expand their networks now whether that always translates into a threat back on the streets of of England is, I think, is is 
is debatable either way. But um, I, I think that the threat is is ongoing and it's it's serious. But there is a a general recognition that we've we've done a good job overall since 9/11 and getting a hold on who it is exactly that poses a threat. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, Robin's on the money. It's uh, it's a uh, it's certainly changed. I think 2006 was the real watershed. I think 2005 was the last successful attack, but I think overt, the big airline spot was really, I mean, the numbers of people involved. But I mean, having said that, you know, it is interesting. If you look at the Birmingham plot you referred to earlier in the year, the wider cell around them was about 12 people strong. Um, it just seemed like there was only the core of the three who were planning to do this incident. But there was a whole bunch of guys who were sort of involved in other things along the way. And then there was a subsidiary cell who uh, were planning to attack an EDL march in Dewsbury, which was connected to that group. So it was a big community. I think. The, the, the difficulty now that groups or plotters have is, you know, is that the British Security Service have got very good at understanding how these networks work, who they are, how they're connected to each other. And so their investigations are much more targeted. And so they can they have a sense of, you know, who's out there and can quite quickly sort of grasp it. Um, so I think on that side, it's quite difficult. But what you have, I think the numbers probably stay pretty consistent. You know, I think the amount of people that they're sort of concerned about. I think Syria has probably been a spike I mean, the amounts of people going over to Syria, I mean, I know the official reported figures is like 120 or so. I suspect it's a lot higher. From, From the UK alone, that is. And, you know, across Europe, we're talking up to 1,000, I think. But I suspect it's probably higher. Um, I don't think they really have an idea. But I guess I think it's just very difficult to track that. But, but the point is, when they come back here, if they start moving in the sort of traditional sense, the, the security service has got a pretty good sense of it. I think the bigger problem that they've had now, and I think Woolwich is the best example of this, is the sort of rise of these individuals who sort of are connected to these networks and are sort of known entities security service, but choose to act by themselves. You know, who sort of self-radicalize. Well, self-radicalize is the one word. It's really self-activate. These sort of lone wolf phenomenon, or lone actors, as people refer to it. Um, that is a dangerous thing that is, you've seen more of in the past few years, and you're going to, I think, see more of going forward. Um, and that's where the security services haven't really quite got a grasp of it. In the United States, the approach to dealing with these people is identifying them through their sort of online activity and then basically sending in a cell of agents to sort of help build a case around them. Uh, that doesn't work here, and that's not, that's an approach that hasn't been tried or it hasn't, well, it just hasn't worked here. Um, but I know that that's sort of where this concern is going. I do think the numbers and the places they're going are remarkably consistent. Um, I think that's more, in some ways, the most sort of surprising thing. Um, you still have people going to uh, Yemen. You still have people going to Pakistan. You still have people going to there, even though Syria is now the sort of giant magnet. But they're still going to all these other places, and that's, of course, a concern. I think the security services now have got a big issue worrying about um, keeping track of this whole picture, you know, with all these different areas that are sort of popping up as Arabs' concern. There have been ones that maybe they're focused on less. Nigeria, for example, has always been a sort of British policy interest, but it's never really been looked at in such a focused way in sort of counterterrorism terms. Um, and that's a capacity that they're still having to grow. Robin, you mentioned, um, you know, just the sheer number of opportunities, really. If somebody in the West wants to go and get some training, get some experience, uh, there are plenty of opportunities out there. Um, why don't we touch on looking forward, Afghanistan post post withdrawal, post twenty fourteen. Uh, what kind of dynamics that are in play right now are going to contribute to de- really determining whether or not that will once again become, to some degree, a haven, a place where it's sort of uh, uh, territory where where these these groups have freedom of movement, freedom of operation, to be able to conduct 
uh, training uh, after after the withdrawal of U.S. and coalition forces? Well, I mean, Iraq and Afghanistan are obviously two very different conflicts, but you have got one kind of similar problem in that we're going to be leaving, and there may be a, a greater U.S. force left behind in Afghanistan than Iraq, but you are facing a problem of a of a of a government that isn't essentially able to function and, and maintain security in a way that we would be we we, we would be delighted with. Um, there is still an Al Qaeda presence in Afghanistan. It's one of those strange things about the way that this this conflict is reported is that you can get. Um, 10 ISAF press releases saying 40 Al-Qaeda operatives, 50 Al-Qaeda operatives have been killed in a, uh, in a missile strike or a counter-terrorism operation, yet for at least three or four years, the number of Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan is between, between 50 and 150, you know, so either we don't know who the hell's there or they're replenishing in a way that, that we can't seem to measure. I think a lot of that is, uh, we're, we're dealing in guesswork with the, the amount of the actual strength of the group, I think, really. Um, it seems to me, and, and, and not someone who, who professes specific Afghan expertise, but there are opportunities for Al-Qaeda in a country that they are very, for obvious reasons, very historically tied to in Afghanistan after 2014, because unless there is a, unless there is a, uh, a sharp increase in the security situation, it has many of the things... Uh, in Afghanistan available to Al-Qaeda would be extremely attractive. A, a uh, Spaces that they will find it easy to operate in, where the government isn't uh, hasn't got control of its territory. Um, Pakistan is obviously for, under huge amounts of pressure from US drone strikes and the rest of it. I think they would see opportunities. I, I failed to see why they wouldn't see opportunities, because as with Iraq, we've, we've proved, and, and there was an awful lot of talk around 2001, 2003 about staying in place like Afghanistan and Iraq until the job's done, no matter how long the job takes. And actually, that's not really been the case. We've stayed there for as long as we can possibly, uh, as, as long as we can possibly face it. And um, I mean, it's, it's arguable how much good we're doing in, in Afghanistan now, but... I certainly think there are opportunities, not just for Al-Qaeda, but a whole range of uh, jihadist networks connected to them to, to take advantage of the situation in Afghanistan again afterwards. Um, I mean, Afghanistan is an interesting one. I don't... Um, it's, it's possible that you could see Al-Qaeda rebuilding the sort of strength and networks that they had there before and using that to try to launch attacks against the West. But I would wonder... Uh, what the dynamic there is really going to be. I mean, without Western forces there on, in, in such an active posture, that's going to change the dynamics of what's happening within the country. I mean, I don't know what that means for Taliban recruitment. Uh, the Taliban, presumably some factions of them are going to come into the government or do something or come to some sort of arrangement there. That, I think, will change the dynamics. So I, and it, it's difficult to know how, how all that sort of plays out in the long term. The question I've been looking at is trying to understand what Afghanistan, what it sort of means for its region. And I think there, there is a lot of potential for trouble to take place. I think, frankly, when post-2014, the sort of biggest danger you'll see is in Central Asia or in Pakistan. I mean, in Pakistan in particular, where, you know, groups that anti-Pakistan state groups that are at the moment in Pakistan will be able to just set up across the border in Afghanistan where they're completely beyond the control of the government. I mean, they already are to some degree anyway. You know, that I think will, will have implications for what happens in Pakistan, you know, and the country there, which has already had levels of sort of brutality and violence that is really unbelievable. 
will just sort of escalate potentially and become a lot worse. And, you know, that remains a country of great concern. You still have people going out there trying to connect with terrorist groups. And, you know, you have groups there that have expressed an interest and attempted to launch attacks in the West uh, or against Western targets. And we're not just talking Al-Qaeda. We've got Lashkar Taiba, We've got... Um, um, TTP, which has had links to a couple of attacks abroad. You know, this is this is potentially a very sort of dangerous situation. I don't know necessarily that Al Qaeda would be able to profit from this whole situation. I mean, they're sort of, you know, in, inextricably linked to a lot of these groups in, in many ways already. So maybe they could, in some sort of parasitical way, do that. But by themselves, I am uncertain. I guess a lot of it will depend on the. I mean, the, the, the other groups involved in this, the Haqqanis and the rest yeah. of it, the strength of the Taliban, Al-Qaeda are just one part of a, of a broader insurgency in the Afpak region. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's one of those things, and, and we can apply this to a lot of other countries as well. We, we, for obvious reasons, we get obsessed with Al-Qaeda um, because of 9-11 and, and everything else. But for many people living in these countries, Al-Qaeda is just one of a bunch of problems you've got to cope with. Same for the governments. Al-Qaeda are just one of a bunch of problems. And within, I think, the AFPAC situation, Al-Qaeda are just one of a bunch of terrorist groups we have to worry about. Thanks, guys. Um, I'll ask, I guess, I think the final question, just to wrap up, very briefly, we've seen uh, the threat, the terrorist threat, uh, collectively, I I guess, but you can can use Al-Qaeda, I guess, as as kind of a microcosm. Um, We've seen the terrorist threat over the past decade or so change in terms of its nature. We, you know, you see lots of references to Al Qaeda 1.0 and Al Qaeda 2.0 to, to really capture the, the change from a hierarchical organization to some this sort of diffuse network-based uh, structure. And you see Al Qaeda 3.0 thrown out there every once in a while. Now it means different things depending on who you ask. Um, very briefly, looking backward over, you know, say the last 10 years. And specifically where we are now, how has the threat changed, first in terms of magnitude, or in terms of uh, nature, so to speak, and second in terms of magnitude, is the threat greater, lesser, or uh, or is it roughly the same? And I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I'm, I'm going to. <laughs> but you'll do it anyway, right? <laughs> I'd say it's probably more complicated, you know, which is a bit of a sort of cop-out answer, but I think it's just a more complicated threat. I mean, I think it used to be a more monolithic organization in many ways, and I think I mean, but in many ways, I think the issue is that Al-Qaeda isn't necessarily... Um, it's a lot of these regional affiliates that have sort of adopted the Al-Qaeda name. In some ways, they had their own local issues that they were already fighting about and already angry about. And Al-Qaeda sort of gives them a global brand that they can attach themselves to, which helps with fundraising and helps with, you know, support networks and everything else. But um, So I think that's part of that sort of picture. But how that plays into the broader threat, though, it becomes a very more complicated threat to understand and to look at. Because then does it mean that those groups, because they've adopted the name, are going to therefore follow the path and start doing action in that direction? Al-Shabaab, as you mentioned before, they've never particularly been linked to attacks back here. But they did adopt the name, and they've certainly got the links and capacity to do something if they wanted to. Um, So I think that's the sort of... The the issue is really that Al-Qaeda is a more complicated issue than it was before. And understanding that from a security perspective is very tough to pin down exactly where the threat lies. Um, yeah, I, I think, I, I guess I would just, I would I would describe it as, as the, the threat is, is more regionalized than it was prior to 9-11. I mean, in, in terms of, if you could, if you're thinking of areas in the world with an Al-Qaeda presence where you could conceive of intervention now, I think it's far more than it, than it was on the 10th of September 2001. Um, obviously, it's it's uh, it's homeland in Afghanistan. It it lost its presence in Pakistan is is 
dispersed and, and many of its operatives are, are, um, are scattered around the world and we've seen this, this, the, the blooming of these affiliate groups. The one thing I, I, I think is going to be really interesting to look out for in terms of Al-Qaeda and its, its future is uh, what's the next step for it? So we see a little bit, and we've seen it a little bit, and it began in Iraq and they, they misplayed their hand terribly in terms of controlling territory. Then they tried it again in Yemen in 2011, and they, they, they overplayed their hand eventually, but because they were bringing things to the population, like food, water, electricity, that the state had failed to provide, they managed to gain a level of traction. Um, and I, it's, it's interesting, there's been a, uh, a letter discovered recently from, uh, from Waheshi in Yemen, sent to Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, talking about the things that work in terms of trying to gain uh, support from the local population, uh, the, the, do's and do, the do's and don'ts almost. So if they're going to, if they're going to um, develop as an organization where, where they, they think they can gain some kind of support from the local population, I think that has, that has implications in the type of uh, rhetoric they use and, and their messaging, but it's also a bandwidth issue. If all of a sudden you're having to think about providing um, sewage services, sewage services yeah. then that's, that's, that's less time you're spending thinking about the next bomb on the next airliner. So, um, Raf's absolutely right. It's become more complicated. The group has had to adapt and change from, from the Bin Ladenism period, um, and it's, it's tough to know which way it'll go next. Thanks, guys, uh, for a really interesting talk, uh, both of you. I think uh, there are a few empty glasses on the table here, so I'm going to flag somebody down and see if we can rectify that. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you.